Welcome back to Drafting the Past. I'm your host, Kate Carpenter, and this is a podcast devoted to the craft of writing history. My guest in this episode is Dr. Anav Rabinovich Fox. I'm really happy to be here. Anav is a historian and writer. She teaches at Case Western Reserve University, and her first book, Dressed for Freedom, The Fashionable Politics of American Feminism, recently was published by University of Illinois Press. In addition to her writing, Anav also has worked as a public historian and exhibit curator, and she regularly writes for public audiences in places like the Washington Post, Socalo Public Square, and Nursing Clio. In this episode, we talk about both the challenges and advantages of writing in a language that is not your first language, what it's like to publish a book when you're not on the tenure track, and why she spends a lot of time crawling around the floor when she's editing. Enjoy. For me, it wasn't kind of like, oh, I always wrote as a child and I always knew I wanted to be a writer. It was something that, um, you know, I came to, to like and I came to kind of like see myself as a writer. I'm really in graduate school. I was always like a writer in terms of like, you know, I was always knew how to write to some degree, but I, I felt like it wasn't something like, oh, I wanted to do necessarily in an academic way. But in graduate student, graduate school, I kind of like, well, I like it. You know, I know a lot of people don't like <laughs> writing and it's kind of like the, the thing that they are more afraid of. But I, I actually enjoyed it to some degree. And for me, and I think it was always like important, I wanted to write in a way that will reach the most, as many people as possible. So I think that I always wanted to write kind of like for the masses. <laughs> and, and, and you kind of like realize, well, maybe academia is not the most, it's not the avenue you want to go write to the masses. So I do kind of like, you know, when I, I think I really, I, I really was excited about writing once I, I really started to write for popular audiences. And I think it really helped me also to, to become a better academic writer really thinking about language and about writing, that's something that popular writing really helped me and to kind of like, oh, so, you know, yes, maybe my articles and my books are not going to be read as much as, as the other forms of writing. But I think it did make me better writing, writer and better understood kind of like audiences and kind of like what I want to do with my writing. Now I'm kind of like, I can say like, that it's my passion, but it's it's definitely something that I like in kind of like the whole what academia is, but writing is kind of like what I like to do. Well, let's talk about practicalities. When and where do you like to do your writing? Now, I really like to write in my office. I have a big screen and I think it's really helped me in writing. And it's quiet, especially now after COVID. Oftentimes I'm kind of like alone in the on the floor, so uh, which has good things and bad things about it. So for me, kind of like writing is kind of like the office became kind of like my place of writing. I do need like quiet and home. Now I do have office at home, but like that's a very new thing. So I always had like, you know, to kind of like find an office space to find, you know, a place of your own. And I never had it at home. So my office became place to do it and I, I do it usually in my in the morning I find my writing brain is better in the morning 
and it's quiet and I'm still um, not very early morning because I'm not a morning person, but but kind of like, you know, from nine to to about lunch, that's kind of like my writing hours usually. And after that, I usually do, you know, the other things that are not really writing, but connected to writing. So like, are you a person who writes every day or does it kind of come and go? It come and go in terms of kind of like, you know, deadlines and what I need to do. You know, deadlines are our best friends. But when I do kind of like when I worked on the book, I did try to to write um, every, maybe not every day, but every kind of like a day that I wasn't teaching or wasn't like every write, like what I call a writing day or a research day that was like my day. So I tended to write every day. I was, I, I really do think like, and I say it also to my students, that writing is like going to the gym and I really hate going to the gym. Like really it's like, (laughs) (laughs) there are very few things that I think are more awful than going to the gym. But, but I, I kind of like, well, but if you go and you do it and it's like a muscle, then you, it's getting easier. And I, I do feel like it's the same about writing. Like if you do it, maybe you don't like it at first, but like if you do it every day or every couple of days and you do it, you built a routine of writing, like you be, it's like a muscle. So it, it does become kind of like easier to some degree. So I was, I, I'm trying to do that, that kind of like it, it will be become part of kind of like my life and not something that's like, oh my God, I need to write. Well, talk to me a little bit about your workflow. How do you take notes? How do you organize your sources? Are there special tools that you use? So I'm a very visual person. So I need to see kind of like, it's funny, but I really need to see the text when I'm writing. That's why I like, because I have like a big screen and I think it really helps. And it's weird because when I, when I write, you know, I, I also think like, oh, it's like the length of like the paragraph and how it looks on the page. Like it, it really kind of like, oh, this is seem too short, <laughs> too long. Like the visual also means something to me. So I and, and I and that's usually not when I'm writing, but more when I'm editing. I, I literally use scissors and tape like cut and paste is kind of like a literally action for me and I like to kind of like write I have a floor space so I put all the chapter on the floor so I can see the entire chapter the entire article and then I'm starting to like I'm working with scissors and and organizing it visually like that's something that I that I do so for me that's something that I I need to see the chapter (laughs) I know it sounds weird but so that's for me something that it's really important when I write. I, when I did kind of like when I started this book and was a dissertation, so I used Zotero as a kind of like a way to organize sources because that was the thing, but it's not the best. I, and, and I, it was weird because I was in a, an event that someone from the Roy Rosenzweig center came and talked and apparently he was kind of like one of the Zotero people (laughs) and and I kind of like vented and I told him look it's like it's a great software but it's like it doesn't work for images it doesn't work for you know the things that I really needed to work and he's like you're right it doesn't (laughs) because it doesn't supposed to do those things 
And here, look, try trophy, because that's what we're working on now. That was kind of like that. That's kind of like the software that was supposed to to answer the things. And I played a little bit with trophy, and and I think he was right. I just want to pop in with a quick editorial note here that if you are intrigued by the sound of trophy but don't know what it is, stay tuned for our next episode. I actually talked to an expert in trophy and learned a lot more about how it can help historians in our work. So I think like with this, with like the new project, I will like trophy will become kind of like because I think it does lend itself better to archival and kind of like what historians do than Zotero. We'll see. We'll see how the trophy will go. So what does the drafting process look for look like for you? You know, do you draft by hand on paper? Do you, you know, do you outline that sort of thing? Sometimes I outline, not necessarily. I I kind of like a great believer in just putting word on page. I, I do think the most scary thing is like a blank page, right? So when I write, I usually try to just get word on page even if i'm not i know they're not the most organized or the most you know making sense and because i do find editing easier to some degree so for me it's like okay just kind of like fill fill the page and then you know work afterwards with scissors and tape and <laughs> try to figure out how it really works and i really I, I i do kind of like more free writing i i do you know, in terms of footnotes, which, you know, after sometimes it, it's going to bite you, but I'm kind of like, I don't, when I write, I don't invest a lot of kind of like, okay, formatting a perfect footnote, but I try to kind of like really concentrate on the writing and not kind of like everything that goes with the writing. If, if I'll have a writing day, I will do it in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I can just go and, and do kind of like more working on the footnotes or working on things that that kind of like I need a different brain for to some degree but but I think like for the flow of writing for me it's like that I need to do writing and not like anything that like if this is a time for writing that I need to do writing and not other things that we might call them writing but they're not really writing you mentioned already your cut and paste revision method do you go through multiple drafts that way or or what are the steps of your revision? Yeah, I mean, so I, so I do kind of like read it and then kind of like organizing it and then printing it out again and, and, and see it again. And oftentimes I also work with like, I always have like my main Word document and then like a leftover file that it's kind of like my draft file that I'm trying to play with and like it's a diff and you know sometimes it's paragraphs that I cut because they don't fit in and then I sometimes go back to them um so every chapter has its like really big leftover chapter file <laughs> that that is kind of like more of a the drafty dirty things that I do I I just relegate it <laughs> to kind of like okay I need to see it again on a blank page often like in a different font in a different you know just to to see it differently and then I put it back into the text do you then cut and paste again or you know are there multiple levels of cutting and pasting or is that just your first big revision step that's usually the first big revisions and then then I'm I'm reading it again and I I try to to do more line editing. Yeah, so I'm kind of like, you know, first like it needs to work, right? The, the structure and then like 
every paragraph needs to work on its own. And that's where someone suggested to me to do like the reverse outline method, which I was like, oh yeah, like this is so awesome. <laughs> For me, it's like after I kind of like, okay, I think it works. And then I do the reverse outline to kind of like make sure that really works. In case listeners don't know what that is, how, how do you approach reverse outlining? So again, technically you need to outline. Uh, that's what I tell my students. You need to outline your chapter, right? And kind of like figure out the structure. I, I Sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. But after you do have the written chapter, next to each paragraph, that's a reverse outline, you kind of like write what this paragraph is or what kind of like the topic, what does it do? Kind of like, is this an argument? Is this an evidence? And then you write it, right? And then you have an outline and then you figure out whether this outline makes sense. Um, and then you, it, that's where the places are kind of like, this is really not, not connected to, to kind of like the arc of the chapter, things like that. So I, so I found that as a good method to, to think about. But, but again, I feel like I do it kind of like towards the end. Is there a point in your drafting where you like to share with someone else to get feedback? Yeah, I mean, and that's something, you know, that I really miss about graduate school, because I feel like, you know, that was easier to some degree to, to have that writing community. But yeah, I'm trying, I mean, it often is kind of like in the stage that I kind of like, I think it makes sense, but I'm kind of like too much in the in it that nothing makes sense anymore to me. So I'm, I often like to like to get a feedback of like, does that make sense to you? Does <laughs> that or, like, am I making an argument here even? So I do like, you know, to, to share things that are more baked, but I have, I have like good colleagues here that, that read things that I wrote and, and some of them are in my field, but some of them are really not in my field. So for me, it's like, it's, it, I, I'm kind of like, can you read this please? And kind of like, let me know if it even makes any sense to you. Cause I'm like, if it's, he's not in my field and he's like okay I get what you mean I'm kind of like I'm fine I'm doing okay you mentioned ahead of the interview that one of the challenges of your writing process is that English isn't your first language how does that impact how you write yeah I mean I really think it impacts the way I think about writing right because it's about it's for me it's always like translating kind of like what I want to say and and in a way that make people understand so, but I think like I'm, I'm doing kind of like a two, like my brain, because, because it's always kind of like a translation process, right? I mean, I don't think I, I'm, I'm thinking in Hebrew, but I, I do think in English, but it's sometimes, and it's sometimes when you write, you're kind of like, I know what I want to say. And I know there's an English word for it, but I just don't know the, the word, you know, before COVID, I, I have a colleague here who's like just across the hall. And a lot of time I was like, so, like, what is the word if I want to say this and this and this? And is there an English way of saying, um, you know, or things like metaphors that works in Hebrew, but doesn't work in English, or, or like, how do you say? So I have a lot of those questions, because it's sometimes like, I know the sentence doesn't work. Like, I know it sounds funny, but I don't know how to fix it. And I also think, but I, I think it really influenced the way I write because I'm not as versed in English to make it very complicated. Like, right? It's not that 
I think that you shouldn't use jargon and you 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 need to write clearly. Like I believe it kind of like, but I also kind of like, I cannot write really in a convoluted way because I'm not kind of like immersed in the language to do that. Like I don't know fancy synonyms to, 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 to regular words. So I feel like it did make my writing clearer, whether it was intentional or not, but but yeah, and I, and I do think it is something like grammar and things like that are mechanical to me. Like it's not intuitive in any way for me. So it does make, but again, it makes kind of like thinking about the structure of the sentence and kind of like what really I want to say, like in a better way, because it's not like, oh, it's just sound good. Like, no, I need to know like if it's true <laughs> to some degree. Is that correct? <laughs> if, not not just because it sounds good because nothing sounds good like I don't know nothing is intuitive to talk more about how she brings everything together I asked Anav to talk me through a passage from her new book here's Anav reading an excerpt from Dressed for Freedom the fashionable politics of American feminism Luckily for suffragists, development in clothing style and manufacturing facilitated their ability to appear fashionable without compromising on comfort or mobility. By 1908, the year in which suffrage parades began, new fashions, which reduced the numbers and weights of undergarments and marked an end to the famous Edwardian petticoats with their frills and flounces, entered the mainstream. Moving toward simplification, The new styles created a narrower and straighter silhouette than the famous S-shape of the 1900s that reduced skirt circumference and train length. Vogue's fashion reporter commented on the new silhouette, quote, the fashionable figure is growing straighter and straighter, less fast, less hips, more waist, and a wonderfully long slender supplement around the limbs. How slim, how graceful, how elegant women look. Although the shirtwaist and skirt ensemble would remain popular, its prominence declined in favor of one-paced dresses and tailored suits, which became the latest words in fashion. These styles created a new fashion ideal that, according to fashion historian Elizabeth Ewing, symbolized the start of modern fashion. I chose this paragraph in part because it demonstrates the range of sources that you're using in this book, from the silhouettes of clothing themselves to magazines to commentators and elsewhere in the book you also talk even about sewing patterns how do you weave those kinds of materials that are so different together as I told you like I'm a very visual person so for me it was kind of like very natural to to look at images as text and I know that in history right we kind of very uh, favoring the text but I think when writing about fashion right it's the images that really help me in looking to see a pattern. And, and especially, right, because oftentimes you don't write a manifesto when you get dressed in the morning. <laughs> um, so for me, it was kind of like the only way to really get at, because, you know, I have very, very few kind of like smoking guns of women of like, yeah, I wore this dress because, you know, I really wanted to protest my oppression yeah people usually don't do that I have a few of those which I was really happy to find of like yes it's not just a figure of my imagination but but I really do think that 
for what I wanted to do in the book. So the visual evidence was kind of like right in the base of it. And the challenge was how to how to weave it because I cannot use, um, you know, everyone who is went through the publication process know that images is probably the most exhausting thing to do in a book and the most expensive thing. So I could I there was limited amount of photographs that I could use or images. So you need to kind of like explain to people what you see and what is the patterns that you see, but not making it too cumbersome. So that for me was kind of like the challenge. And and it, and it was kind of like those visual connections that I was like thinking about. And not just visual, because fashion is also material. And that with kind of like in this paragraph, right, with the suffrage parade that was like, yeah, that really makes sense because if you need to go like walk through a city street that is often dirty and was much dirtier than, you know, now for a few miles, like you cannot do it in an 1890s outfit. And and then I saw, oh yeah, this new silhouette really makes sense for parades because you can walk a few miles in this. What kind of work did it take? to sort of find ways to best describe these images so that readers could see them as they read. So again, I think here language really, really kicked in also in a way that not always I knew kind of like the fashion term to use, the correct fashion term to use. So I, and I did try to kind of like that, you know, people who are not from the fashion world actually will understand what is Right. What is a train of address? So I try to to make it kind of like, you know, in in terms that people that are not fashion scholars will understand. And so thinking of a kind of like, what do I see here? Right. And, and, And it is hard because and this is why I do have images in my book, because I really do think that image help you to do a lot of analytical work and in just describing. And I, and I think, you know, and at least, you know, in my book, and I know not all, like, it's not just illustrative, like, I really do talk about the pictures that are in the book are, you know, there for a reason. And they do kind of like do analytical work. Because, because again, clothing is a language, and you can infer a lot of from looking at images and pictures, and even the clothing themselves, um, which is another thing that I did. I remember like going to an archive and looking at bathing suits from the 20s. And then you realize it's from wool. (laughs) (laughs) And you cannot, I mean, like you cannot see it in illustration. You sometimes can see it in, in, in photographs, but it's like when you really touch it and you kind of like, you know, that was like the most, you know, advanced thing. And I was like, I will never wear it in my life. Like, who in the right mind will wear a wool bathing suit that's like disaster waiting to happen but it's something that you cannot do until you touch the actual bathing suit and realize like yeah I would never wear it but yeah so so that's I think those things that that really it really hard also to convey through words in your historical training, do you feel like you were taught how to analyze images and material culture as a historian, or is that something you sort of had to learn as you went? Both. I mean, my undergraduate, I had like, I did a hard art history degree. So I do have kind of like um, some more 
training in in art history so i know kind of like how to analyze an image and, and kind of like what the questions are but it is something that you need to go along the way because I, again it's oftentimes material objects it's not just images and it's something like even in graduate school so i took a few museum studies classes and training and and that another thing that really helps in kind of like thinking about how you tell a story through objects and how kind of like you built a narrative without, you know, without the text, right? What question can you ask about objects that you cannot ask about texts? I always say like, you know, I used to really enjoy, like I can never enjoy reading women's magazine for fun anymore because now it's uh, it, it kind of like it became research I was like yeah what are you doing I'm reading Vogue for like you know from 1910 to like 1918 I just read all the Vogue's there is um, and, and it's not fun to read women's magazine it's not a relaxing thing to do but kind of like right after you you really immerse yourself in kind of like the language of magazines I mean and it's it's both kind of like the textual languages but also kind of like how the magazine page looks like, right? Where are the advertising? Where are the illustrations? And kind of like how how to navigate those things. So the magazine become kind of like an object, not just kind of like for the text, you know, and, and you can really see patterns within the magazines. I was in the moment when I did my research, it was kind of like a moment that it was before the big digitization of, magazine um, now it's like everything Vogue and Harper's everything's online which is which is very useful and when I was doing the like the revisions for the book it, it's far helpful that you can just click like a keyword um, and everything comes up but a lot of when I started it it wasn't so it was either in microfilm or I was lucky because uh, I was in New York at the time. So I just went and spent hours and hours in the public library with all those bound volumes. But it really got me a sense of kind of like, what is a magazine, which I think like if you if you go on the, you know, ProQuest um, database, there are advantages to that, but you don't get the feel of the magazine. And you don't understand kind of like, oh, where is this advertising goes right after what um, section. So that was kind of like a good experience. And then it really became like, and it's nice. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, it's good that there's like a lot of digitization going on. I'm, I'm really in favor, but I really do think that you lose something when you don't have the objectivity of or the the tangible, yeah, the physicality, the objectivity is not the right word. Um, the physicality and the the tangibility of of like touching the source. And I, I guess it's true also kind of like for a written source. I just worked a lot with visual sources, which also, again, I think has to do with kind of like, you know, the thing with the English as a native language. Like for me, it was easier to read images. I want to ask you a little more about the process of revising the dissertation into the book. So I'm, I'm curious how you approached that and, and what kinds of changes it, it took or, or what you thought it would take versus what it did take. I mean, in the end, I wrote two, two new chapters for the book. So the original dissertation is kind of like was compressed to the to three chapters. 
and a lot came down right and it, and it was another thing that like when I did the revision I mean first of all I kind of like let it go like I didn't look at the dissertation for a while and I think it's really is important and you know I'm I'm not as we talk I'm not on the tenure track so and in a way it was something that was liberating because I never had a deadline um I wasn't kind of like oh I have to have contract by this year so I felt like oh I can really kind of like sit with the dissertation and realize like what I want to do and kind of like what I want this book to be and it really became kind of like I, like the book is organized like the theme is different like be, both because the the period like the scale has is different but um but it's also kind of like run under a different team my dissertation was more focused on the new woman image and kind of like that many of it so I like the book is more about kind of like feminist movement and feminist ideologies but uh, I could really think about kind of like okay what I want this book to be and what I need to do to this book for it to be what I want it to be right so so I think like the 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 fact that I could kind of like, okay, let it go for a while. And there were pieces that I knew that were in the dissertation that were like not connected to to anything. Right. So it, it like I worked, I made an article out of it. So I did like other things uh, with the dissertation before I was like, okay, so now I need to think about it as a book. And I was kind of like, uh, I was already talking with publishers. So I, I didn't, like, it didn't start from, from writing a proposal. And, and kind of like, I found a publisher that was really interested. And she's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in this project. But, and, and she's like, I really do think you need to write, like, a proposal. It's not like to convince me in the, but I think it will help you to think about the book more. And I, and I was like, at first, I really didn't want to write the proposal because I was like, well, that you already agreed to kind of like that you want to see the manuscript. So why do I need to write a proposal? But I really do think it was a good exercise and to really understand it. And to some degree, I mean, right. I mean, I wasn't stressed about like, oh, she will read the proposal and she didn't, she won't want to see the manuscript because she already told me she wanted to see the manuscript. So that factor, I think, helped me. And then it became kind of like really a, a writing exercise, which, which I, I do recommend people to do, even if they don't have to do it to get the contract. Because then when I had kind of like, because it really forced me to think about the book as a book and kind of like how everything can work together. And then it was really a document that I could go back to the editor and she's like, look, I think here you're making a really good point. I think here you can, you know maybe think about this chapter as two chapters or kind of like maybe you need to think about it differently um so but it was really an exercise of kind of like i'm like i really didn't want to do it but once i did it i was like this is like really good like people should do it <laughs> what were the challenges of working on a book not on the tenure track well you know uh first of all the 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 teaching load and the the fact that you you already have like another job which is applying to jobs and also kind of like at one point when I'm like hell I'm just 
going to publish the book, but right, it's kind of like when you're in the beginning, it's like, do you want to have a book in the job market or kind of like when to start the process? I feel it's always like negotiating and navigating between kind of like have something concrete or like show that you're, but as you further away from, from the PhD, right, you need to show that you have a book. So, so that negotiation, but at one point I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna publish and I don't care. And that's another thing, like, you know, you don't have institutional support, right, to, so I had, I had to do more research because I added chapters and, and the things that I didn't do for the dissertation. So, you know, luckily kind of like the archives I needed kind of like had their own travel grants, but not always like I had that. So, and I, there, there were some institutional um, in the place that I am that I could apply to, but it's not that I had like a semester off, right? When you're on the tenure track and kind of like research grants and those things matter. It, they are important and you don't have it. Well, before we go, I want to talk a little bit about inspiration. Are there other writers or historians that you look to or that you like to read? I, I mean, I, I really, again, like historians who who write, who, who really kind of like use visual objects or material culture as a category of analysis, right? So, I mean... Nan Anstead, who had a wonderful book on, on fashion and labor, and, and I really like the way she writes. I think she, again, she writes very loosely and, and very kind of like in a way that you can see what she means. You know, I remember uh, reading Ladies of Labor and Girls of Adventures, and I was like, this is the book I want to like, you know, the like, book like this I want to write. So, so that was was also great. I mean, Katie Pice was also really good about really thinking. And and I think, so kind of like really to think about culture in a serious way, and also to think about the limitation of what cultural history can do, right? And, and kind of like, because you do want like clothes to be, you know, to do like very meaningful work, but, but there are limitations to that. Like they cannot do everything all the time. In terms of kind of like writing uh, style, Tia Miles, her latest book was really kind of like a good, it's like, yeah, I would like to write like this. Um, I don't think I do, but but it was it was one of those times that kind of like, yeah, this is what good writing really looks like. And, and I always kind of like, again, how she weaved, it's her talking about objects and history and her own personal voice. So I feel that was like, from the recent things that I've read, I was like, oh my God, this is like really good writing. But, but again, I think it, for me, it's hard to replicate it to some degree because I think for, forever, like no matter how good I'll become in English, it's like it will always be a foreign Terran to some degree. So I, I'm like... I'm always kind of like, oh, yeah, like, but thinking of how to replicate those things, like, for me, it's, like, harder. I'm, I'm more motivating, of like, okay, what do I want to say? And, like, trying to say it. What's the best writing advice you've ever gotten? So I think the, the one thing that really kind of, like, really changed the way I think about writing is that writing is thinking. And that, and it really, you know, it was kind of like, it was, once I really understood that, it, a, it made me fear less about writing. 
um, because I was like, okay, writing is a thinking process. And that's kind of like how I treat it. So this is why like, it's okay to do revisions and that you know that the first draft is shit. <laughs> and really to think about writing also as a thinking process really um, helped me to, to think about language and kind of like, okay, how this language sounds like. So, so it, it really is, I think, really shifted the way I was thinking about what writing can do and what is the function of writing. But kind of like in a more practical advice that I got is really to think about your writing projects in terms of words and not in terms of chapter or a dissertation, because that really made everything doable. Because I was like, yeah, I can write 500 words a day. That's, you know, that's two paragraphs. I can totally do that. You know, and if you write 500 words a day, after 10 days, you have 5,000 words, which is an article. That was like, for me, of like breaking it into words and not to kind of like, oh, I need to write a dissertation or even I need to write an article really helped me. And I think that that's, again, kind of like helped me to, to fear less about writing and kind of like when I also start to do more public writing, I was like, yeah, I can do like 1000 words writing about a topic. That's totally easy. Like that doesn't need to take me a long time. So that in thinking about it kind of like in terms of the capacity, in terms of words and not in terms of pages or, or project that I think really helped me. Well, before I let you go, can I ask you what you're working on now? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of like I have some few smaller projects that came out of the book. And I feel I need to dive in like last dive before I let it go. But now I'm kind of like, you know, on the more research stage of, of kind of like a second book project that looks more kind of like the commercialization of feminism in the 70s and how the marketing of feminism was good or bad for the movement. I haven't completely decided, but uh, <laughs> so now I'm kind of like diving in into advertising campaigns and things like that from the 70s is actually, I, I mean, I don't know if it's good or bad that things haven't changed and changed a lot but I mean for me it is I need to go into primary sources before I can figure out what I want to say I'm trying to kind of like also again because I'm not on the tenor block so I was like I just wrote a book and I want to enjoy it <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on the show and talking a bit about your writing process it was great to have you on Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Inav Rubinovich-Fox for joining me on this episode of Drafting the Past. And thanks to you for listening. You can find show notes, including links to all of the books that we mentioned in this episode on draftingthepast.com. If you have been enjoying the show and you would like to help me keep making it, you can now support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash draftingthepast. Until next time, remember that friends don't let friends write boring history.